I'm just excited to be able to be up here today and to be able to share with you the Word of God. Um, I'm not excited to be up here because I get to be on stage and up front center because that's still really kind of scary. Um, but I'm just thankful to have this opportunity, and I appreciate you guys um, allowing me to come up and share the Word of God with you this morning. Some of you guys I know, and some of you I don't know. Some of you I know your situation, and, and some I don't. Um, I feel like there's a, a chunk of people who have come into the church faster than I've been able to connect to. But I've prayed for you. And I've been praying for you. And I've been praying for this message this morning because I think it's good. I think it's helpful. And so I pray that we will see God more glorious today through this passage and our lives will be changed by it. And not just this week because I'm preaching, but I pray that's how we come to church. Seeking and hoping to see God in a new, in a real, in a bigger way than we saw him before through his word and for our lives to be changed by it. So our passage this morning is Luke 6, 1 through 16. And we have the kingdom of God that is beginning. Through this book of Luke that we have in this word of God, we have divinely inspired stories that Luke has given to us to allow us to be front row and center to this building of the kingdom of God. And we get to see some things that Jesus is doing in that kingdom. How do we know that this kingdom is taking place? Earlier in Luke, Jesus said to the crowd, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Towards the end of Luke, it says, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he, Jesus, answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, Nor will they say, look, here it is, or or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. The arrival of the kingdom of God through the person of Jesus Christ, which has happened, Jesus is here on earth, and through the reign of God that's manifested through his people who are believing in God and wanting to follow after him. So although not fully consummated, consummated, the kingdom of God is at work and it's at hand. So we see it starting here in Luke, and we're still part of that building of the kingdom of God here and now in our lives, waiting for God to come back for his final time to take us home and to set up his kingdom here on earth. Sorry about that. Try to wave my hands less. So in our passage this morning, we're going to be looking at two areas of the kingdom of God that, that Jesus is establishing here on earth. And within those two areas, we're going to look even closer at a few aspects that Jesus is laying out for us. If the phone wants to work for us this morning. So I'm just going to give you the outline from the beginning so you can see where we're going. So we have, in this passage, there's three short stories. The first two are about the Sabbath, so we're going to take a look at those. We're going to see how Jesus is redefining for us what the Sabbath was meant to do. And then the third and last story is Jesus choosing his apostles. And in that, we're going to take a look at prayer and perseverance, what that means to us by by being able to read and observe 
observed this story. So what we're going to do is start out with the first one, and let's open up to Luke chapter 6. Well, we're going to read the first story here, Luke 6, the first five verses. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. Some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, Son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. So one thing that we notice right from the beginning, which seems to be typical for Pharisees, is they're trying to find fault in Jesus. They're trying to accuse him of something, try to find sin in his life. The flaw in their plan is that they spend so much of their time looking for faults in Jesus that they really fail to observe who he really is. They don't actually get that he is the divine son of God. So they spend time looking for that sin from someone who is never going to sin. If you remember back in chapter 4, when Jesus comes into the synagogue and there's a man who's possessed with a demon, the demon cries out and calls him the Holy One of God. So here, the Pharisees are looking for sin from the Holy One of God sin's never going to come from. And in the process, they miss the healings. They miss the miraculous power over nature, the supernatural, the knowing of people's thoughts and intents of, of their heart. They miss all of that because they're too busy trying to find the fault instead of seeing the perfect God that he is. So in this section, we're going to observe how the Pharisees are trying to catch Jesus doing something unlawful. Verse 1 says, on a Sabbath, as he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them together. So they're plucking off heads of grain, and they're rubbing them with their hands. That is to get the, uh, the outside chest area off, and then they're eating it. Personally, my difficulty with that would have been, why is somebody walking through my grain fields, my wheat fields, and they're plucking my wheat and they're eating it, um, especially if they didn't ask. This was something that was acceptable at the time. This wasn't something that was, uh, would have offended anybody. We take a look at, at Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 24 and 25. It says, If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing green, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing green. So they lived in a time where doing this sort of thing was acceptable. It's sharing what you have with other people and that person who is um, accepting of that, then not taking advantage. So not taking grapes and, and more than you can eat and not um, cutting down more in their, in their wheat fields. But that wasn't, that wasn't the struggle. Um, verse 2 says, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? <clears throat> so they weren't concerned about what they were doing. 
The concern was about when they were doing it. They were doing it on the Sabbath day. Exodus 20, um, verses 8 through 10 says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall honor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall do no work. So a little bit of history about the Pharisees and their law. Um, they had two sources, really, of law that they're pulling from. One was the written Torah, which is known as the, the Pentateuch. We know that, the five verses of the Old Testament. Um, they were given by God to Moses. They also had a second source of Jewish law that was an extended version of that written Torah. It was extended through uh, tradition, interpretation, and that, that oral version was written down and called the Mishnah. So the Mishnah contains a whole unit that's dedicated to all the things that are not allowed to happen on the Sabbath. And so according to, the, to this list, the disciples were reaping and threshing and winnowing and preparing food all by their walking through the field and plucking grain and rubbing it together and eating it. That's what the Pharisees saw. They saw them basically doing four different sins all on the Sabbath. So what, is, what does Jesus do with that? Luke says that the disciples were doing that, but he doesn't tell us that Jesus was doing that. But the Pharisees see that Jesus is their leader, and so he goes to them to make this accusation. And Jesus answers them with, with a question, which is often done. Verse 3, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. He's referring to First um, Samuel chapter 21, verses 3 to 6. Now then, this is um, King David. Just, actually, before he's king, King Saul is on the throne, and King Saul is trying to kill David. So David is on the run. He's with a group of men, and he comes up to a priest. They're in need of food. David asks the priest for food, and that's what we're looking at here. Now then, what do you have at hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread at hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even if it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence. So Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, don't, don't forget about David. You know, I have a problem with David and what he did. He was providing for his men. So if you condemn my disciples, you're going to need to condemn David and his men as well. And the point Jesus is trying to make is really bigger than what the law is talking about. The point is that Jesus is trying to make is that the, the ceremonial restrictions of the law need to give way to human need. If there's a human, if there's a person in need, then that needs to come higher than the ceremonial law set on the Sabbath. And Jesus adds this in verse 5. He said, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Um, if there was anybody here that wasn't here last week, um, Jesus, or Sean 
in his message talked about this phrase, son of man. Um, in Aramaic, it could mean some human being. However, Jesus doesn't use it that way. He uses it in a different sense. Later in Luke, he says, you will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Obviously, he's not talking about a human man. But he's making references back to Daniel chapter 7, where the prophet Daniel sees a vision of one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he says this, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, so all peoples, nations, and languages shall serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus is claiming by this phrase, the Son of Man, to be the one who possesses that eternal authority and power of God. So when he makes this statement about the Sabbath, and that it should give way to human need, he's doing it with the authority and power of God. The other thing to notice also in both of these stories is that we are presented with a representative standing in for the people. King David was standing in for his men, and Jesus is standing in for his disciples. So in this case, Jesus has that authority as the Son of Man to interpret that law and to change it where it's needed and to give it a blessing for us to do that same thing by what is taking place here. It should not be a burden the Sabbath should be something that's a help and a service to us. Um, just as a, a practical aspect of that, as we're thinking about the, the Sabbath, for us, it's traditionally Sunday. That's the day of rest that we've traditionally observed. Um, we also aren't called to hide behind this Sunday as a day of rest. It isn't a reason that we want to get behind to get out of serving God in ways where he's called us to serve. It could be serving in the church. It could mean taking food to the poor. It could mean helping someone in need. It could be visiting at a nursing home. It could be helping somebody move. The list could go on and on, but the point is that we don't not help someone in need or not do something that we're called to do because it's on a Sunday and we're, ah, you know, this is my day. I rest. I also don't go to the other side where we don't take time to rest and rejuvenate and refuel ourselves because we need to take care of ourselves, and that's what this is also here for as well. But the other side of that is we can swing all the way to the other side and forget about the need of others and always take care of ourselves. And if we're honest, our, busy, our schedules are quite busy, so we spend six days a week doing stuff we have to do work, in school, whatever it is, and then on Sunday, we lock that away and say, that's just for, for me to rest, for God. So you go through seven days, and you never have an opportunity to reach out. You never have an opportunity to connect with your neighbor, to show love or concern for someone else, and that, that's not the picture that a Christian life should look like. So spend time for yourself. Relax. Spend time with the Lord. Dig into his word. Spend some time sleeping if it's needed, but don't forsake the need of others. The second story in our passage this morning is also about the, the Sabbath. Most likely, these did not happen Sabbath, six days later, and then another Sabbath. It was most likely a little bit spread out. 
Um, Luke doesn't say that, but just the wording, it probably was a little bit more spread out. So why is Luke adding two stories together that are about the Sabbath? Um, other than the obvious that they are about the Sabbath. Because we see later in Luke that he's also talking about things that happened on the Sabbath day. Um, one thing is Luke wants us to understand how steep the Pharisees are in their tradition. Again, tradition isn't bad, but if we care more about the tradition and we miss the picture and the, we miss out on our, our love and concern for others, then we've missed the point of the Sabbath. We've missed the point of loving. Uh, the other reason for this is we get to see Jesus refining and clarifying the Sabbath. So that's why another reason why he's put these two stories together. So let's read the second story, and this starts in verse 6 of Luke. So Luke 6, 6, read down through verse 11. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered, withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and he stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. And they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So we see the helpfulness of having two stories together, but really getting a glimpse of how deep the Pharisees were with their tradition. This was another Sabbath, and Jesus is in the synagogue, and he's teaching, and there's a man there whose hand is withered. Paralyzed, atrophied, Luke doesn't say. The condition could be from paralysis. It could be a disease like polio. It could be something he was born with. It doesn't say that. But Luke does point out that it's his right hand. So no offense to anyone who is left-handed out there. But 90% of the world is right-handed. So chances are this right hand that was withered was his dominant hand. And if it happened after he was born, then it was his main working hand. It was his hand of, of skill and strength. So when it became unusable, his life was severely altered. We can see how that would be the case. We also know from this story that the healing wasn't requested. The man didn't come to Jesus and say, can you heal me? He was in the synagogue, and at some point, Jesus calls him over to stand next to him. Not requested, but a miracle that Jesus chooses to show his power and his authority. It was also to help teach a lesson, and we're going to see that in just a second. So Jesus is in the synagogue teaching. There's a man with a deformed right hand. Who else is there? We see the scribes and the Pharisees. Would like to say that they're harmlessly listening to Jesus' teaching and they're learning, but they're not. Verse 7 says, And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him, that is Jesus, to see if he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Have you ever tried to spy on someone while you were doing something else? 
maybe you're in a business meeting and you're trying to hear what someone else is saying. Um, maybe you are talking to someone. Um, maybe you're at a family function. You're talking to one family member, but you really are more concerned about what somebody else is doing or saying. What happens is you're really unable to listen to the person in front of you because you're too distracted with that side story that you need to know what's going on. And that's exactly what we have here happening with the Pharisees. They're unable to listen to Jesus and his teaching because they're so focused on finding something to accuse him of. There's another practical life point for us here to grab a hold of. And that is, I hope that none of you are coming in with distractions that are keeping you from God's blessing. What do you mean? I pray that you're not distracted by something else and you're missing an opportunity to be in the presence of God, of being with his people, saved by Jesus Christ, moved by the Spirit and being able to worship and lift up the name of God this morning. Now, don't get me wrong. We come in and we're tired. We come in and we're distracted. We come in depressed. Life's complicated. Life's hard. We come in that way, but we ought not stay that way. We don't want to allow the, distraction, the distractions of life to block out our view of the Savior and what he's done for us to give us that freedom from the struggles that we work with and we fight with and we deal with on a day-to-day basis. So I don't want you to come in sick and distracted by life and miss the chance to be healed by the healer, the one who cares about you and your struggles. That's our point there. Come in with the struggles. Don't leave with the struggles. Leave knowing that God loves you and he knows where your struggles are and he's there to help you. You have to depend on him and stop depending so much on yourself. So let's look back at verse 7. It says that they watched him. And the words used here kind of have a sinister plot to them. They are they're spying, they're secretly watching to see if Jesus is going to heal on the Sabbath. What are they going to accuse him of? What, what would be the problem in healing a man on the Sabbath? Well, to the Pharisees, the tradition that they held to was that healing or medical work that was... Um, not an emergency, wasn't to be done on the Sabbath. So examples of what would be acceptable would be a life in danger, a baby being born, or if a a circumcision was needed. So after a baby's born, there's a certain number of days before the baby needs to be circumcised. And so these were three things that were accepted. And we see a couple of these in Luke. Uh, In Luke chapter 4, we saw the demon um, being in the synagogue, and he was crying out. Jesus needed to deal with him then and not let it keep going, so there was a miracle there. Um, In verse 38, we saw Simon's mother-in-law, which had a very high fever, Um, and this was a serious situation that needed healing to, uh, to fix. But in our story here, the situation is not urgent. And so since the Pharisees knew that, then they saw his healing, if he did it, to be something that was in violation of the Sabbath. But it says in verse 8 that he knew their thoughts. This is is also another little cool miracle. A little, not a little, a big 
supernatural God power, you could say, where he's, he's not picking up from Twitter that the Pharisees are trying to trick him. He didn't intercept some communication that told him that, but he connects to their minds, right? He reads their thoughts and all of them, and, and, and he knows them. It was like, like, bam, I know what each one of you right now are thinking. That's just supernatural. So he knows what they're thinking. He knows that they're trying to catch him. So, so why doesn't he back away? Why doesn't he just heal him another day at another time? But for Jesus, this wasn't a trap. This was an opportunity to, again, show his power, but also teach a lesson. So going back to verse 8, he said to the man that had the withered hand, come and stand here. And so the man rose and, and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? Now, by saying to save a life, Jesus is referring um, to a, a general deliverance, that is to restore someone's health. Um, it isn't a word of salvation, um, but it is to give physical restoration. Since it was permitted to save life on the Sabbath, then doing good for someone else or doing good for someone would be acceptable also. And wouldn't this be a natural expression of showing our love for someone else, our concern for them, if we were able to heal them, if we were able to help them? Loving one another is one of the two commandments that Jesus gives in the New Testament. The first one being love, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The second one is like it is love your neighbor as yourself. So how can we love our neighbor if we can ignore their pain and their suffering and a need that they have. And this is what Jesus, this is the point of what Jesus is trying to, to get at here. So here in this verse, Jesus is, is describing their actions of, of secretly waiting to catch him, right? They're, they're trying to catch him and do harm to him to destroy his ministry, right? So there's the destroying that's, that's taking place. They aren't looking for good. Instead, they're looking for harm. So he calls them out on that and asks them, which one is better? I'm trying to help him. You're trying to destroy me. Which one is better? Which one is allowed on the Sabbath? You're wanting to see me destroyed or me helping a man that's in need. In verse 10, after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so. His hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they should do to Jesus. The Pharisees are furious. Why? They're upset because God doesn't hear sinners or Sabbath violators like Jesus, and yet right here in front of them, they're witnessing a healing that takes power from God. So they're mad. This is like destroys their thinking. How can this take place? On top of that, they wanted to say that Jesus did some level of work. What did, what did Jesus do? All Jesus did was speak. Stretch out your hand. There's not a lot of work involved with that. Surely they've done more work in that and, and walking to the synagogue. And the man is healed. His right hand is physically restored right in front of them. Whatever in the, has happened in the past that caused this deformity is cleared away. And all the man had to do is believe and act. 
He didn't have to do anything. Jesus called him to stretch out his hand, and his obedience was his trusting just to stretch his arm out. All you have to do is believe and move your hand, which he couldn't do before. And it changes his life forever. Now this morning, if there's anyone here who is not a believer, you don't trust in who Jesus is. If you're curious, Jesus seems like a, a pretty, pretty good guy. I think there's a God. I'm not sure where you are in your belief, but you're not there where you don't believe in who Jesus is. You don't believe that you have sin. You don't believe he died on the cross for it. This healing that we're witnessing, reading Luke in this section, is a picture of healing for us. That withered hand is our sin. Not just the sin of an unbeliever, but the sin of all of us, because we're all sinners. All aspects of our life are affected by our withered hand, our sin in our life. And we had no power, just like this man had no power, we had no power to fix our sin. But Jesus does. That's the hope. That's the gospel. The good news is that Jesus has the power to heal us physically, and he has the power to take away our sin. John 3, 16 God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So don't be okay with your sickness. Come to the one who can heal you. Don't be okay with your sickness and hope that one day you can fix it. You can't. There's only one person that can heal your sin, and that's Jesus Christ. He's done it. He's just waiting for you to have the faith to stretch your hand out and be healed. So those are our two stories this morning about the Sabbath. But we don't miss the point Jesus is trying to make. The intent, the intent of the Sabbath was to keep people from working without rest. It's meant to, to be a time of rejuvenation for the people of God. Stop working. Take, take time to refuel yourself. Take time to meditate. Take time to allow God to speak to you. Because if you stay too busy, then we have a tendency of not hearing God anymore and taking time for him. Slow down. It's meant to serve God's people. It's not meant for us to serve it. We aren't meant to serve Sunday, although some of us come to serve on Sunday. But it wasn't meant to keep us from doing good. Not that hound on it too much. We're not going to get specific with things you can and can't do. That's something that you have to work out yourself. But take time to rest, but also do the work that God calls you to do. Loving and caring for people that are around you and taking time for yourself. So the third and last story in our passage this morning starts in verse 12. We'll read that together. Chapter 6, starting in verse 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, 
and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So, two aspects that we want to look at this morning from Jesus choosing his apostles. The first one is prayer, and the second one is perseverance. What can we learn from this passage about prayer? Well, we see that Jesus separated himself. He went out to a remote place, and he spent the night, all night, in prayer. There are over two dozen verses in the New Testament where it talks about Jesus praying. Jesus was an example to us of praying. Jesus was the Son of God. So by default, you would think he may not need to pray that much, but that was opposite of what we see taking place. Jesus prayed all the time. And when Jesus prayed, it was serious prayer. Here we had one of the longest times in prayer. He prayed all night. Jesus made a point to pray to the Father because he needed it. He was doing the work he was called to do. He was busy. He was tired. But it was vital for him to pray, so he made time. He broke away and took time to pray to God. Here it says that he broke away and went to a mountain and prayed. Mountains are pretty, but we don't need a mountain to pray. We just need to get away. We just need to separate ourselves from life and take time to listen to God, to tell God our struggles, and to commune with him. That's what is needed. So why is it important for Jesus to take time to pray to God? In this situation, it was because he was choosing 12 apostles. He's got a group of disciples that follow him. They're part of his ministry. They love him. Jesus is teaching them. But the plan was Jesus wanted 12 people that would be part of his inner circle, kind of a core team that he wanted to work with. He was going to work alongside them closer than all his other disciples. He was going to spend more intimate time with them, teach them, prepare them for the work that he needed them to do after his going to the cross and being crucified and resurrected and going back into heaven. He needed someone that he could dedicate that special time of teaching and focus and prayer on getting ready for that. But what was he praying for all night? Luke doesn't say, but we can get an idea about what he was praying about. All the things that go into someone who loves a group of people and out of that group of people wants to pick a smaller group of people for a huge purpose. These are the people that he's going to be sending out planting churches and spreading the word of God. You want the larger group to do that, but you have to focus on a, a smaller group to really to, to get some of that core teaching that he was looking to do. So what would you be praying about? Praying for them to be strong and remain faithful, even if they weren't chosen to be one of those 12. That may have been a difficult transition for some of them. Why don't you choose me? I'm a pretty good Christian. So he's praying against that. He's praying that they will be strong and still be followers of Jesus Christ after the apostles are picked. He's also paying, praying for the 12 that he did pick because he knows what's coming up in their life and how difficult that's going to be. 
There's also areas, if you've, any area of service that is in public view comes with different struggles, right? So humility is one. Getting alongside and loving other people is different when you were in leadership. And the apostles could have struggled with this. So Jesus is praying against that. We see in Luke 22 that before Jesus' betrayal, that Jesus prayed for Simon. He says to Simon Peter, Behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So this is Jesus praying for just Peter on one occasion. Why would he not be praying for a group of 12 that he's looking to commission and send out after he works with them for three years? Jesus also prayed because he wanted to do the will of the Father. In all of his time on earth, that was his goal, was to please the Father, to do the Father's will. His aim was to bring glory to that, to God, and that meant even in the choosing of the twelve apostles, bringing glory to God. So an all-night prayer event with prayer event with God. Um, just one one thought as I say that. If Jesus spent all night in prayer in before he chose twelve apostles, how much time in prayer should we be sent spending before we make big decisions? How much time do we pray now? I'm not saying that you need to spend hours. That's a long time of prayer, but maybe you do. Probably we need to spend more time than we are spending in prayer right now. We make big decisions and we take about a couple minutes to pray. We take a lot of time doing our own personal deciding and personal thought. And we probably need to switch that, rely more on God and less on us. Be wise with your decisions. Do your research, but don't neglect prayer. Because above all the things that you research and all the knowledge that you know, God is above all that. God is sovereign and is in control. So don't try to circumvent his work by thinking you can just be smart enough to make that decision. So we have an all-night prayer event with God that has taken place here. Notice that Jesus didn't have to schedule it. This is the other thing that's huge that I think we miss out on. He didn't have to schedule time with God, and even the size of his prayer time being all night, he didn't have to see if God was free. He just got away, and he just started praying to God, because God is always there. He's always there for you. You don't have to clean yourself up and wait for the right time. You just need to humble yourself and pray to God. So if you're a child of God, you have that same opportunity that Jesus had here in this all-night prayer. So after a night of prayer, called his disciples and chose from them 12 that were going to be apostles. Why 12? It's an even number. I like even numbers. Luke doesn't say here, but we see that the 12 was to reflect or to parallel the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 23, speaking to his apostles, he says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So what we see from this picking of twelve is we see a connection 
from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We see God's people in the Old Testament being the, the nation of Israel, 12 tribes of Israel. And then in the New Testament, we see 12 apostles that are now beginning the church. And we know they're connected. Jesus' people, and then he comes to earth, and then we have the apostles that are building his church, the new Israel in the New Testament. So who was, who was chosen? Luke tells us. Um, Simon, who Jesus called Peter, his brother Andrew, both fishermen. James and John, who were brothers, also fishermen. They were also uh, Jesus' cousins. Jesus' mother Mary had a sister named Salome, and her two boys were James and John. So there's some um, relatives there. Next to that, there's Philip and Bartholomew. Bartholomew isn't listed in one of the other, in, in John's listing of the disciples. And most likely the reason for that is Bartholomew was a, a family name. So in the book of John, he uses the name Nathaniel. So most likely they're the same person. We have Matthew, the tax collector. We have Thomas the twin, who's also known for the famous Doubting Thomas incident. James, the son of Alphaeus, not to be confused with John's brother or Jesus' brother. It's kind of like our church. We've got a lot of Johns and a lot of Daniels. So Daniel, son of Mr. Buckley. Anyway, so we add names to help differentiate those. We also have Simon, who was called the Zealot. Interestingly enough is the Zealots were a group of political activists who opposed uh, Roman government. So it's interesting that we have um, Simon the Zealot, and we also have Matthew the tax collector, because the tax collector is doing the work for the Roman government. So on Jesus' core team, he has someone who's very for and very against the Roman government, and God pulls them together for his kingdom work. And next we have Judas, the son of James, who was called Thaddeus. And finally we have Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So as we look at this list of apostles that Jesus chose, I think there's one name in particular that stands out. It can almost seem comical at first when you think about it. I mean, really, Jesus spent all night in prayer and he picked him. Peter and Andrew, good. James and John, good. Philip and Bartholomew, good. Matthew and Thomas, good. James the son of Alphaeus, good. Simon the Zealot, good. Judas the son of James, good. Really, Judas Iscariot, the traitor? You spent all night in prayer for Judas Iscariot? Lord me, really? Jesus, you prayed for him and you chose him? Knowing he would never truly love you. He's going to betray you, God. You're going to spend three years of your life and it's not going to count for anything. He's not going to follow you. He's not going to be a true apostle. He's never going to step up to be part of the church that you're building. 
He knew that, and he chose Judas anyway. He chose Judas because it glorified God. He chose Judas because part of his bigger picture of love included showing it to Judas, the traitor. Jesus' life had a mission, and it led to the cross. He died for our sins. And that plan included Judas, the traitor. So we talked about prayer. The second one that we're going to talk about is perseverance. And what does perseverance have to do with Jesus choosing 12 apostles? And what does that have to do with Judas, the traitor? How is that helpful for us? See, Jesus knew ahead of time what Judas was going to do. And he still chose him to be part of his inner circle, his special team. He knew the future struggles he was going to have with Judas. He knew Judas's unloveliness. But Jesus deliberately included Judas on his team. And we know why. He had a mission. He had a purpose. But what does that mean for us? And this is where it gets hard. You're going to have a Judas in your life. Someone you're going to show kindness to. Someone you're going to love one. Someone you're going to care for. You're going to share the gospel with. You're going to come alongside and help them through their struggles. And you know what? In the end, it might feel wasted. Maybe they betray you. Maybe they just walk away. Maybe even worse, they don't even believe in Jesus. They never become a Christian. Could be someone in the church. Could be someone in your family. Could be your neighbor. Could be a friend of yours. Could be a best friend for years. Could be one of your children. What do we do with that? We persevere because Jesus persevered. We loved because Jesus loved. We let God do the heart work and we do the love because that's what we're called to do. Like I said, it could be your best friend, it could be your kids. If you don't have kids, one day that you do, that's going to be deep. Because God calls you to be a Christian parent to your kid, whether you think that they're a good kid or a bad kid. Regardless of what they do, you're still called to love them like Jesus loved Judas. So we see and we learn what love truly is. That's what Jesus showed us. That's what he showed us by choosing Judas. Is what Jesus showed us by going to the cross. That's what love is. Love is not always easy. It's how we suffer for Christ. It's how we become more Christ-like. And it's how we glorify Jesus who died for us. Ultimately, how we glorify God with our lives.
So to sum all that up, let's use the Sabbath how God intended it to be, to strengthen ourselves, but also show love and concern for people around us. Let's take time to pray because we need it. Jesus needed it. How much more do we need it? And let us persevere in our Christian life at the hardest times when we're dealing with the Judas because it's all for the glory of God. Let's take a couple minutes of silence and just think about those points before we head for prayer again.